0: In the winter of 2006, during a time of theological crisis in the Episcopal Church, a bishop over the province of Southeast Asia spoke to a group of church leaders, and he said the following. He said, I pray that the church will be able to rise up to the occasion and be the small voice in the wilderness, speaking out for the faith that was entrusted to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is our duty to speak and act when other gospels slip in to destroy the faith and unity that we have in Jesus and Jesus alone. We must lift high the cross of Christ. And I couldn't think of a better way to more succinctly echo the theme of the book of Galatians that we begin to talk about this morning, that we begin to study this morning, than this quote, that came at a time in the 21st century when there was a crisis, a theological crisis. We'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. But suffice it to say that Galatians' theme throughout all of the message that we'll look at in this series is no other gospel, Christ and his cross. While it's the title of our message today, it's really the ringing theme through the entire book, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And the letter to the Galatians, this first letter of Paul's, is quite unique, as we're going to see. It's unique not only in Paul's approach and how he begins, but it's certainly unique in its tone, in Paul's passion for the gospel, for no other gospel than the cross of Christ. And it's dealing principally With this idea of the capital T truth of the gospel measured against counterfeit gospels that want to come in and want to invade. I was talking with our caring pastor, Jason Wallace, about this series a couple of months ago and what was coming and he reminded me of the job that the Secret Service plays in the United States. The Secret Service was established during the Civil War to deal with a counterfeiting issue of American currency. And the method of the Secret Service really hasn't changed since then. The Secret Service's approach to detecting counterfeits is to study intensely and diligently the authentic Federal Reserve note. And by knowing it so well, they're able to recognize counterfeits when measured against it. And so we're gonna talk about some false gospels this morning, not just this big denominational thing that happened with the Episcopal Church, but even in our own lives. But we're first going to measure that against the truth of the gospel, the capital T truth. Well, perhaps uh, a pop culture quote will help you uh, really kind of bring this to a succinct place, and then we're going to pray. If you're familiar with the snarky scientist from the Jurassic Park movies, Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. There's a great line in the first Jurassic Park movie where there's a discussion going on about the ethics of creating these dinosaurs. And there's some lines about uh, whose version of the truth is applied to the ethics that are happening. And Goldblum's character, Ian Malcolm, says this. There are no versions of the truth, right? There's only the truth and falsehood. And I think the Apostle Paul, if he were to watch Jurassic Park, would amen that line where the gospel is concerned. So let's pray, and then we'll look at Galatians 1. Our God and Father, this morning we want to be reminded principally from your word, but also by the leading of your Holy Spirit, by the saints down through the ages, and by those who have stood for the gospel against the test of time and false gospels. God, we think of people like John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and John Calvin, all the way down to John Ping Chung, John Ruchiana, and other bishops, and those that have stood for the true gospel. Lord, may that be said of us as we go from here today, that we stand for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna look at three things this morning. Uh, We'll start with the essence of the gospel, then we'll look at the perversion of the gospel, and finally, our, and I would say my, obligation to the gospel. Let's look at the first couple verses of Galatians chapter one. Paul begins, he says, Paul an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And Paul begins, Paul is the author of Galatians. He begins by stating his apostleship that it is from God, not from man. Now, we're going to kind of punt on defining the idea of apostle and and what is an apostle and how is Paul called for as an apostle, what does that mean today, because Paul expounds on that in the next section, and Zach's going to cover that next week. But suffice it to say that Paul's defense of his apostleship here in the very first verse was in the interest of defending the message of the gospel itself, not himself, This wasn't ego. In other words, he's saying, just so you know, I'm an apostle from God, and so I can speak to and even correct doctrinal or teaching issues where the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned. Well, what about his audience? He opens with this line, to the churches of Galatia. And this is unique amongst Paul's letters. Pretty much all the rest of Paul's letters are to a particular church in a particular city, to the church in Colossae, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Philippi. But here he says, to the churches of Galatia. And these were churches that Paul had planted in his first missionary journey. And for those of you note-takers, you can read about that in Acts 13 and 14, at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and and in Derbe. And Paul actually goes back to those churches a second time in his second missionary journey. It's likely that he writes Galatians kind of right between there, somewhere around AD 50. Because of the issues that we're going to read about over the next several weeks. But Paul's audience here is unique. Now to be truthful, uh, all of Paul's letters, even, even if written to a specific church, ended up being circulated. Such that they're circulated to us in the word of God. But Galatians is unique. And certainly Paul's tone, as we're going to see, is unique. What about the, what Paul is addressing It's interesting that before Paul gets into the real heart of why he's writing this letter to the Galatian churches, and after introducing himself, there's this interim uh, or interlude, as it were, of an explosion, sort of an overflow of a doxology in verses 3 through 5. It's an overflow of praise for the gospel. Read with me in verses 3 to 5. He says, grace to you and peace from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to him be glory forever and ever amen there are several of these doxologies in Paul's letters where he literally just as he's writing I'd imagine the holy spirit is leading him he just overflows in praise before he gets to his real subject matter And the gospel is something that just oozes out of him. And so he begins with the words grace and peace. And I love what John Stott says about this in his commentary. He says, These are no formal and meaningless terms. Although grace and peace are common monosyllables, they are pregnant with theological substance. In fact, they summarize Paul's gospel of salvation. The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation, peace with God, peace with man. Peace within. It isn't that what all of us are longing for and want in life. Now, we pursue it by a whole different set of means, but we want to be at peace with our Creator. We want to have peace in our relationships. We want to be at peace in our own hearts. Stott continues. He says, the nature of salvation is peace. He goes on, the source of salvation is grace. And if you've been with us through Deuteronomy, uh, this idea of grace and the way Stott describes it ought to ring familiar. He says, God's grace, God's free favor, irrespective of any human merit or works. His loving kindness given, as it were, to the undeserving. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago in Deuteronomy and the New Testament. Grace and peace. The gospel Is a message of rescue. Paul says that he, Jesus, gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Now, if God gave himself through Christ to rescue us, it's because we needed to be rescued from something. We needed to be saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were more than lost, you were dead. And the gospel of Jesus is a life-giving message of restored freedom and new life. So this is how Paul begins. He addresses his authority as an apostle to speak about these things. He overflows in this doxology. And then he moves to his subject matter. But this is also unique in Galatians. In all of Paul's other letters, he moves from his greeting and he goes to something like, after he introduces himself and talks to his audience, he says something like, I praise you for this. Or I thank God for this. Or I commend you for the way you've done this. Not Galatians. Listen to how he begins. We're in verse 6. His letter to the Galatians. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul moves from the essence of the gospel captured in that doxology, and we'll look at that in more detail, but now he's talking about the perversion of the gospel. And and note what he says. He says that you have turned from him. Not turned from a system of belief or an ideology, but I'm surprised that you have turned from him. And then he references some others who have come in and caused confusion. Now we won't spend really any time on that this morning. But what was happening in the Galatian churches is that Gentile believers were coming to faith in Jesus. And then Jews were coming from, particularly Jerusalem, and coming up and saying, hey, that's great that you've got Jesus, but you also need to follow the law of Moses in in a certain manner. So we'll look at that in detail later. But Paul first reacts with this, this sense of amazement and shock. He's stunned. He says how quickly you've turned away from the message that you received. And the verb tense here is not passive. This is active. It's like uh, uh, someone going AWOL from their commitment to the military or, or being, I think one of the commentators said, spiritual turncoats, which makes me immediately think of Benedict Arnold and others, other traitors. Paul, Paul's language is extremely strong here. How quickly you've turned, he says, from the gospel that you received. Well, what is the gospel that they receive? We kind of hit on it a little bit because Paul kind of explodes with this doxology in the beginning through grace and peace. But what is the content of the gospel that Paul is communicating to all these churches? There's two key passages in the New Testament that deal with uh, sort of the, the substance of the gospel and then the means of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, the substance of the gospel is what is... The 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 essence, the substance. What is the gospel message? And then, on its own, that's just information, right? It's facts, and we'll look at that in detail in a moment. But what is the means of the gospel being transformative in the life of an individual? How does that become appropriated into my life? Well, let's look at two passages. The first is in one Corinthians chapter fifteen, and note how Paul begins this this section. He says, "I want to make." clear to you, brothers and sisters. I want to bring clarity. I want this to be crystal clear to you. The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. So Paul's talking to those who have already placed their faith in Jesus, and he's going to make the gospel uber clear. He's going to boil it down. If you hold firm to the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, for I passed on to you as most important, what I also received. Paul says, I I communicated to you, I passed to you, some of your versions will say, as the most important thing, that which I had received from God. And then he names four things. He says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. We needed rescue. Apart from God's intervention, we were lost, we were dead, we were under his judgment. Paul says, Christ died for our sins. Just to be really clear this morning, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, if you would not call yourself a Christian, Paul would say you were lost in your sins. You were spiritually dead in need of rescue. So, first thing, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, he was buried. Why is this important distinction? We're going to talk about this on Holy Week. Jesus was not swooning, it was not a figurative death he was physically dead, buried in a tomb to pay for our sins. Number three, he says, he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That he was bodily, physically, historically raised from the dead. Again, not a symbolic resurrection, an actual resurrection. That's the third thing. Finally, he says, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, to the twelve, and then uh, sisters and brothers at one time, most of them who are alive, some who have fallen asleep. Now, Falling asleep just means physically they died. That's biblical language for death. What Paul says is that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again, and he was seen by a whole bunch of people. And Paul adds this really important detail. He says many of whom are still alive at the time that this was written. In other words, if you don't believe me, go talk to somebody who saw him. There are plenty of people alive at the time that Paul writes the Corinthian letter who could verify the authenticity of the risen Jesus. Another way to say that is there would have been plenty witness to it if it was a hoax at that time. This is an important apologetic point, but that's not the purpose of our message this morning. What is the substance of the gospel? It's a historical event. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and his, that he was a uh, bore eyewitness to a whole bunch of people. Well, again, that's just information unless it's apprehended into my life. Well, that brings us to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to excerpt a little bit out of Romans chapter 3. And I was on a, in a discussion on, on social media this week with some pastors, and one of them was asking, all right, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? As we start naming, you know, different folks naming different chapters, and I kept changing mine. And then I got in trouble. They started mocking me. They said, he said one chapter. But Romans 3 is definitely in there. So is 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. Listen to what Paul says. This is the means of the gospel. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace. There's that word again. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. In other words, Jesus' blood and his death stands in our place, atones for our sins, deals, provides that rescue that we need. And it is received through faith, Paul goes on to say, to demonstrate God's righteousness and to declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you catch that? That in, in, in the span of a couple sentences, Paul says that the gospel establishes that God is righteous and allows to be declared that I, of all people, can be declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus. And what is the means? Paul says three or four times, depending on how you read it, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. We have the content, the substance, the essence of the gospel, but the means is by trusting in him for eternal life, by surrendering all that I am to him and saying, Jesus, I'm banking on what you did on the cross to forgive my sins and provide me for all eternity. This is the substance and the means of the gospel. It's what we ought to, as we're going to see in the rest of this little section, Galatians be fighting for. This was the essence of the issue that cropped up in this theological crisis that happened in the Episcopal Church in the United States uh, between roughly the late 90s and as recent as not quite 10 years ago. And it all began when the Episcopal church began to ordain both priests and bishops who were living openly gay lifestyles and that contradicted with Episcopal doctrine, biblical doctrine on what uh, marriage and sexuality are supposed to be according to God. But that particular issue which caused people to start to, uh, cause this rift, if you will, was actually symptomatic of something much deeper. It was a rejection of no other gospel. Christ and his cross specifically it was a rejection of the word of God as authoritative it had to be because of what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality but it was also a rejection of Jesus as God listen to a couple of quotes from Episcopal archbishops, bishops and priests during that time one former archbishop said this he said he no longer believed that Jesus was the son of God but rather an extraordinary man by the way, if Jesus is not the son of God, he's not an extraordinary man. He's kind of a twisted person. C.S. Lewis makes this case at length. He's not right if he isn't the son of God. In 2002, there was a, a confirmation of a new archbishop over the district of Washington, D.C. And at the time, the Episcopal Church ordained this archbishop. He was, they knew that he publicly rejected the Christian faith. I mean, it almost, to even say that, the bishop over the Church of Christ, the Episcopalian denomination, who denied the Christian faith. And at his inaugural sermon, he said this. He said, the Easter story of resurrection, which defines the core of Christian theology, is at best conjecture. He he went on in his sermon to say that the resurrection accounts in the Gospels were confusing and contradictory. He didn't know his Bible, by the way. Or how about this, this quote, during, uh, or this fact, during the uh, convention of bishops in 2003, a, a group of bishops voted to reject a resolution which reaffirmed Holy Scripture as authoritative, foundationally authoritative for the church. They shot down a resolution to reestablish that the Bible was the authority for the church and for doctrine and for teaching. They went so far as to say that the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit was presently leading the church to contradict the words of the gospel. The Episcopal church had a crisis. Uh, There are more quotes, I won't, won't read all of them. And here's the beautiful thing that the Lord did. God in that season raised up archbishops from Africa and from Asia who said no. This is one quote we have read from this gentleman earlier, Yong Ping Chung, who said this. Without apology, he said, we stand firm on the authority of the Bible for salva- and salvation in Jesus alone. We acknowledge that we are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. However, we know that the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us to claim the victory that Jesus and Jesus alone has won for us on the cross. We want to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. Now, here's why this is important, folks. What we're reading in Galatians is not just something that Paul was dealing with in the first century as the gospel began to take root in other parts of the world. It's not just something that the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin confronted, even confronting the Holy Roman Empire itself. This happened in the 21st century. And folks, this happened here in Groton. Right here at Bishop Seabury Church in Groton. Bishop Seabury, who was the first ordained Anglican priest in the entire colonial U.S. And at Bishop Seabury Church, the rector of that church, his vestry and several church members stood up and said no. And they lost their building and they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 We have people in this church who were there. I spoke with them this week. I actually spoke to the the priest, the retired priest from that church, just to get his perspective. But here's the beautiful thing that God did, is he raised up these African and Asian archbishops. And what they did is they literally covertly ordained bishops to the United States. They formed what was called the Anglican Mission to America, and they ordained new Anglican bishops and sent them to the United States as missionaries, Americans, Americans. And Yong Ping Chung said this. He said, we are so grateful that God sent missionaries centuries ago to bring the gospel to us. But now we're sending missionaries back to America to bring the gospel back to them. And so was born the, American, the Anglican mission to America. Uh, so much so that if you're familiar with Bishop Seabury Church in this community, it's under the jurisdiction of a Nigerian archbishop to this day. This What we're studying in Galatians, as we go through this book, no other gospel, Christ and His cross. Let's before you look down on the Episcopal Church. Let's acknowledge that can happen in any church when we move away from the centrality of the gospel. Well, you might say, well, you know, these ideas—that's great, but that's you know, big denominations and global events and priests and so on and so forth. Well, let's consider some false gospels in our own lives this morning. I want to walk us through four of them. And there are others. I'm sure you'll think of some as as I'm talking here this morning. But these are false gospels that, let me define it this way. Anything that becomes in my life the thing that I'm trusting in as Savior to save me or give me security and hope and and so on and so forth. And it's very easy for these things to creep in. And I will tell you, as as one preacher said, there isn't a word that is preached to our people that God doesn't first preach to us, or ought not to be anyway and I've wrestled with each one of these, a couple of them in particular. So let's start with the first one. It's the gospel of legalism. The false gospel of legalism. This false gospel puts obedience to the law or a set of rules, either biblical rules or just self-subscribed rules in the place of savior. And it appeals to us because of our desire to be in control and we like to be able to measure outcomes. Right, if I can look at the list and I've checked the list, then I feel good about my religious standing. But this is a gospel that can never deliver because the list is never complete. We're always compelled to add new rules and it's a, a list that disappoints because in our guts, if we're honest, we know we haven't fully obeyed. Or did I obey with the right spirit? And we're left with less security than we thought we would have. Biblically, the biblical idea is not legalism, it's discernment. It's a dependent, uh, uh, fluid, active relationship with the living of living God through His Word. This gospel legalism—well, let's just put it this way: the gospel of Jesus is better because Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus perfectly obeys, and we rest. We rest in His obedience, in His perfection. I don't have to strive because he obeyed perfectly for me. This is a false gospel that I've struggled with at different times in my life, particularly when I was younger. You might say it, uh, call it performance-based Christianity, the gospel of legalism. I wonder if that's something you struggle with this morning. And I want to encourage you, the biblical response if you are convicted that you do is repentance and say, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Help me to remember it's all about you and your cross move to the second one we've talked about this a bit lately as a church the gospel of the miraculous or supernatural in this gospel we seek to put experiences of the supernatural even manifestations of the holy spirit in the place of savior right it's not that those things are bad in of themselves but we put it in the place of savior or maybe at a minimum we make it necessary for salvation this gospel appeals from a good desire, a desire to be a part of something that's bigger than we are and the desire to participate in, in important and amazing things in the name of the Lord. It Comes from a place of a good desire. But if it becomes the main thing, it's a false gospel. And it's a gospel that can't deliver because it's only as good as the most recent experience. The most recent either supernatural experience or emotional high or mountaintop experience. It's a gospel that will disappoint because those experiences will fade. And we're left with the ordinary, with the mundane. Uh, Pastor Zach and I were talking about this this week. He had this great illustration. He said the gospel, the false gospel of the supernatural, the miraculous, is kind of like expecting a a romantic relationship to be the most... uh, uh, exciting or extreme examples of, of that romance all the way through. The, fee, the, the peak feelings of romance all the way through. Or if you use friendship as an example. The most special adventures and, and moments that you've shared in friendship, living there the whole time. It's not realistic. It's a false gospel. The gospel of Jesus is better because Jesus promises more than, but including, by the way, experiences Right? ecstatic experiences of, of God's work in your lives and seeing the Holy Spirit work and, and even miracles at times, particularly of seeing people come to know Jesus. But the gospel of Jesus provides a pervading, almost overwhelming peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, even in, place, in the place of quiet meditation, as well as exuberant worship, and even in suffering. In the gospel of Jesus, we can experience peace and joy in the place of suffering. In fact, the path of sacrifice and suffering is a gospel path. If our expectation is not only to avoid suffering, but to live only in the highs of religious experience, we're going to be let down and that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, if you have given yourself to this gospel of the supernatural and put it in the place of Christ and his cross, the biblical response is repentance. Well, let's move to the third one. We talked about this one a little bit in the fall. It's the gospel of personal or sexual identity. And this false gospel puts my expression of my feelings and my impulses and my own sense of identity in the place of savior. I I function literally like my own little God. Small g, by the way. (laughs) It appeals to our desire to be in the center of our universe and for all our relationships and all that's happening in our world to revolve around me. It's a gospel of entitlement that reaches all the way back to Adam and Eve. It says, I decide who I am. And I decide what I do with my feelings and my desires and my urges. And most of the time, it's I indulge them. And it is a false gospel. It cannot deliver in that we will never arrive, listen, we will never arrive at a finished sense of self. Even as human beings, we're just constantly evolving, growing, developing, relationships are changing. It's also a gospel that disappoints because our appetites are never satisfied. They're insatiable. Part of the spiritual discipline of fasting is to teach our physical appetites that they will not, as Paul says, be master over us. They won't rule us. The gospel of Jesus is better because, brothers and sisters, friends, He says who I am. And if you are His, if you know Jesus, you are a daughter of the King, you're a son of the King. not only does he say who I am, but he satisfies, even Jesus is the only one who can stay my desires even when they're unmet. Psalm 103 and Jeremiah 17 tell us that he satisfies the righteous with good things. This is the kind of God that we serve. The false gospel of personal or sexual identity fails to see that God is the one who tells us who we are. Again, the only response, if this has become our savior, is to, is to repent. Final one, and I'm sure there are others that come to mind. The gospel of materialism or financial security. I think this one kind of gets a pass in the church in the West. This is a false gospel that says the accumulation of things or the piling up of wealth is in the place of Savior. And it's a gospel that appeals to us because it gives me control over my sense of stability and security. We say, Jesus, I love you, but I'm depending on my 401k. It's a false gospel. It can't deliver, it disappoints for two reasons. One, we will never have enough, we'll never be at a place where we say, ah, I'm good. And two, the Bible teaches that our relationship with money is an inverse relationship. The more that we hoard it, the more we keep it to ourselves, the less generous we are, the less secure we are, the more unstable we become, the more isolated we become. The gospel of Jesus is better because we find delight, the Bible teaches, in giving ourselves away through even financial generosity, even to the point of sacrifice, because that's what Jesus did for us. Paul the Apostle said that he who was rich... For our sakes became poor that we might become rich. And Paul is talking metaphorically in spiritual terms in a passage where he's exhorting the church to give financially. It's an inverse relationship. We've said during our capital campaign God's math does not work, you can't outgive him. Some of us, and at times I fall prey to this one too, swallow the false gospel of financial security. The only response is repentance. You see, any false teaching, whether it be some major event in a denomination or an entire church or the false gospels that whisper to my heart are ultimately something that's insidious and seeks to pull me away from the Lord Jesus Christ. John Ruchiana, one of the African bishops, actually the first African bishop to uh, have jurisdiction over an American bishop in Little Rock, Arkansas, during the Episcopal crisis, said this. Always remember that false teaching has a purpose. It is the devil himself tormenting the church. He distorts the Bible. He confuses Christians. He stirs up division among us so that we become inefficient our ineffective in our mission to preach the gospel to the lost. Therefore, we must oppose heretics immediately. And the first heretic I must oppose, brothers and sisters, is me. He goes on and he says this, the Apostle Paul said he did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. We must never waste time. We must stop them, recover the church, preach the Bible, and get back into mission. Now, if you think Bishop Ruciana's words are harsh, listen to the last two verses in our section this morning where Paul says in verse eight, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. You'll note in the notes I I put this down is that Paul is two times the harsh in talking about our obligation to the gospel. There is no apology for, for confronting false gospels, first in my own life, but then as a church. It's what we should be about. So, as Paul comes to the end of his life, he writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he says this Timothy, the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine or teaching. But according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And I will confess to you that there are times that I want to hear what I want to hear. I don't want the conviction of God's word in my life around some false gospel. Sometimes the path of walking what Jesus has called us to is hard. But that's no excuse. And so two applications for us as we wrap things up this morning. The first is this. To those who are Christians in the room, those who name the name of Jesus and call themselves Christians, we must contend for the gospel. In writing the letter of Jude he says this near the beginning. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. I'm going to invite Johnny out and we're going to sing a final song in a couple minutes. But I want to leave you with this idea as believers that we contend for the gospel. And that starts with asking ourselves, asking the Holy Spirit, are there false gospels in my life that I have bought into, that I need to repent from? And we wanna offer you a time this morning to just come forward and, and receive prayer for that. Second group of people I wanna to talk to by way of application is this, are, are those who don't know Jesus. Perhaps this morning you say, I, I'm not a Christian. I've not trusted in Jesus and I would say to you, each of us, each of you, each of us must respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel. The Bible teaches that once you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're responsible to respond to it. You've heard it this morning. Christ died for your sins to rescue you. But it's also much more of an invitation. Jesus says in Mark chapter one, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Speaking of his own coming, repent and believe the good news, Jesus says. Repentance means simply to turn away from doing things my way and trying to make it on my own to say, Jesus, I receive what you did for me on the cross. I wanna walk with you. Some of you have never done that. We wanna invite you to do that this morning. If you're online, you can interact with our mediator online and tell them, I need to receive Jesus as my savior this morning. Paul says in Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That means anybody who believes is saved by calling on the name of Jesus and trusting in him. Have you believed the capital T, T, truth of the gospel? So we're gonna sing three simple verses this morning and I'm gonna invite you to come for a time of prayer for one of those two things and one other. One, if you've never received Christ as savior, I want to encourage you to come down. We're going to have some elders and other leaders here to pray with you. Two, if you say, you know what? I've bought into a gospel of a false identity or legalism or financial security. I need to repent from that. We encourage you to come and receive prayer this morning. Or maybe you just had a lousy week. Maybe it's something in a relationship or an illness you're facing and you just need prayer. One of the things that's been heavy on my heart this last few weeks is that as a church, I feel that we need to grow in the ministry of prayer. And so from time to time, we're just gonna open up the front and we're just gonna pray for each other and pray with each other as the family of God's people. So Johnny's gonna lead us. Once he starts singing, come on down front. There'll be some folks here to pray with you. And then we'll conclude. Johnny. Pray with me, church. Jesus, you said in the gospels that my house will be called a house of prayer. Lord, make us a praying people. Lord, we repent of the false gospels in our lives, Lord. And Lord, perhaps you're preparing us as a people to be ready for what you wanna do on Easter. God, we give you this morning, we confess no other gospel but
1: Christ and his cross as a church this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.